Hey listeners, quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting Mobile. Mobile that makes sense. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, after a little bit of technical difficulties there, you yes. finally got this podcast up and running, huh? It seems like it. Maybe. Hopefully. So <laughs> so if this sounds like crap, we're really sorry because it's just didn't go the way it was supposed to go, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. So... But on to the more serious subject. Yes. What do you got for a story for us today? All right. So what we have today is kind of a, a mixed bag, hodgepodge, jumble of garbage. How about okay. that? Wow. Really selling. You're, you're, right yeah, you're really selling the audience on this. <laughs> no, so, so what I have this time is we're moving ahead in the timeline. We're now up to the 1960s and allegedly, I'll say allegedly at this point, Frank Balistrieri is about to become the head of the Milwaukee Mafia. Okay. So I thought before we take that final leap where he's the guy, and he's going to be the guy for the rest of this podcast forever, take a step back, and I went through my notes, and I pulled out all the stuff on the Balistrieri family, family with a small f, family, up to this point that has not previously been in the podcast. It has not previously been in any of the books that I've put out. So this is all just an assortment of random stuff of what, you know, bringing the family up to date. Okay. So does that make sense? I think so. So so this is just basically little tidbits of things about the Balistrieri family that we won't have heard anywhere else. Right. Some of it some of it we've probably mentioned, but some of it I know we have not. Okay. So his father is Joseph Balistrieri. His mother is Benedetta Picciuro. Uh They were married in 1917, and Frank was born in 1921. Uh, even though he is the, the eldest son, uh, apparently they didn't have children for a couple of years, um, but he's born in 1921. Uh, his father runs two businesses. One, the Balistrieri Brothers, which is like they have the carts and the horses and they haul stuff, sometimes garbage, sometimes other things. And then they also have the Milwaukee Cinder Company, which is Joe Balistrieri, the father, uh, and his brother, Frank, not to be confused with our Frank. Frank. (laughs) Uh, A lot of common names here. And the Cinder Company would collect cinders and then they would make cinder blocks okay and i think we talked about this in a previous episode yeah uh there's that which is a great business because you're getting paid to haul stuff away and then you can sell the stuff you haul away great business all right 1926 there's peter balistrieri who is another brother of joseph so this is an uncle uh he is with a man named phil damiano and they're arrested for assault and battery Damiano attempted to rob a man named Frank Pfaff of $150 by slugging him in the head with a pistol. A patrolman chased them from the scene, and one of them fired a shot at at the police. 
They were caught when Peter Balistrieri was unable to get his car moving because of icy conditions. Damiano confessed to hitting the man, but insisted he did not know Balistrieri and was planning to force him to start the car at gunpoint, which is probably not true. (laughs) Um, Bail was set at $4,000 each, which is a significant amount of money in the 1920s. After... After the original uh, bond was posted, Damiano was afraid he was going to get deported, so he jumped bail, and he fled, and he ended up settling in San Diego. The charges were dropped, so uh, he ends up getting in no trouble, but he lives in San Diego. Peter Balistrieri lives in Milwaukee after that point. Um, Just pointing out, the point of this is that that Frank's uncle Peter has some questionable friends. friends. Yeah. Uh, the Milwaukee Cinder Company at one point comes under scrutiny because they were renting city land for a very cheap rate for about one-eighth of what other people were renting it for. And there didn't seem to be anything wrong, like anything suspicious about it. That just the city council wasn't really clear how they got such a good deal. <laughs> so so they came up in the news for that. Do we know how they came, were getting such a good deal? Or no. Is this some underground deal or something? No, n- not necessarily. But what happened is the city was selling the land off to the to a railroad company. And when they were selling it off, you know, they had to look at the leases and see who was on the land. And that's when they realized that some people were paying a lot more than other people Ooh, were paying, okay. which is not necessarily, you know, suspicious or, or sinister or whatever. I mean, it, there could be any number of reasons, but... They did think it was odd that there was a discrepancy there, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad was going on. All right. Frank Balistrieri, our guy, uh, marries Antonina, or just Nina Aliotto. Uh, In 1938, she is the daughter of mob boss John Aliotto. Frank had attended Marquette University from September 1935 through June 1938. He then briefly went on to the Marquette Law School, but dropped out. And there's disputes on this. He either dropped out because he was already in the tavern business. So he's like, why do I have to be a lawyer? Or he dropped out because he got sick and couldn't continue his studies. There's either way, he didn't finish law school. I'm going to say that he said that it was because he was sick. And other people speculated that it was probably because he was already into the tavern industry. Could be. Okay. You, know, you don't know any of that? Well, I don't know the truth of the matter. So. Um, he was given the Hillside Club Bar from his grandfather, and the Hillside Club Bar was actually on the Marquette campus. So it did a very good a very good business. All the college kids are drinking at this bar. Um, exactly which grandfather he got it from is unclear to me. The newspaper said that his the grandfather he got it from was Peter Balistrieri, but he doesn't have a grandfather, Peter <laughs> Balistrieri. He has a grandfather, Frank Balistrieri, and also a grandfather, Peter Pachuro. So, which one is it? <laughs> That's great. I don't know. <laughs> I could probably figure it out, but I don't know. In the 1930s, Alderman Martin Higgins, uh, getting city employees to work on private projects for him, he ends up getting caught. And one of the city employees he has doing this is the Balistrieri brothers, who aren't like, you know, not they don't work for the city, but they're on contract with the city. Mm-hmm. So he has them hauling things away on his property and things like that, which um, they're really not supposed to be doing. Again, this is not their fault. This is the alderman's fault. But they come up in the news for that. Uh, Joe, the father, 
uh, finally petitions for naturalization in 1941. So he wasn't technically a citizen up to this point. Um, he gets accepted almost immediately and becomes a citizen. Frank, our guy, was fingerprinted in July 1944 when applying for a bartender's license. I assume they don't do this anymore. Yeah, that seems pretty uh, significant just to get a bartender's license. Yeah, but, but they used it as part of running the background check. They'd get they'd fingerprint you. So before he ever did anything wrong, he already had his fingerprints on file just because he had to get a bartender's license. In 1946, he purchased the Roosevelt Hotel, which also included the Melody Room, which was the bar inside. Uh, he had this for a number of years before the place was torn down for reconstruction in 1960. So, good business there. The Badger State Boxing Club was formed in 1947. He was the manager of that, and he hosted approximately 30 fights in the time that he owned it. So, not like a huge amount, but definitely good for a while there. I'm curious if you know. So, like, when, when you said that, like, he's the manager of these two different places, uh-huh. does that mean that, is he running these places, the day-to-day operations of it, or does um, him as a manager mean, like, well, I just own it? You know what I mean? Or do you for, have... for the bars? Yeah, like the bar and then the boxing club. Well, the boxing club, he's definitely, like, directly operating. The bars, I think it's more or less he's the owner. And he just I, could, kinda... I could be wrong on that, but I don't think that most days he was in there behind the bar. Okay. I was just curious, like, how how close of involvement he was yeah. in the business. At that point, I don't know. I, I know later on, when he's a bar owner, he's not a bartender. bartender. He's, like, pretty much never there except when he comes to collect the money and stuff. So uh, maybe this earlier point in his life, he was a bartender. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But definitely later on, it seems that like he was happy enough to just have employees do that for him. Okay, so the Badger State Boxing Club, fairly successful. Uh, he's He works in that with other people uh, who become notable later on in the union uh, union business, uh, Ben Barwick and Phil Valley. Not really going to worry about them at this point, but they're in the boxing club business with him. So the, the fight that they're most known for happens in May 1950. Uh, they have Rocky Graziano fight Vinny Sedoni. And uh, if anybody wants to nail me on pronunciation, that's the time to do it. Because I probably <laughs> got one of those wrong. Probably both of them. Probably both. Uh, Rocky Graziano, <laughs> no, I'm pretty confident sure. with. Uh, Vinny Sedoni, I could be very wrong. <laughs> uh, the fight brought in 12,267 fans and raised $49,000. Wow. Yeah. Which I'm assuming for, that's a significant amount of money for the for time. The, for the 50s, that's pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, Bellistry later said the Graziano fight offset some of my losses on other matches. He would later credit this event with really launching his business career. I mean, he already had bars and hotel, but apparently this was what, this was this the is big what moment. he was looking for. <laughs> yeah. On Tuesday, September eleventh, nineteen fifty-one, a Bellistry Brothers employee named Henry Cramp was under the Holton Street Viaduct with his team of horses when a boy threw a stone at him, causing him to fall off the cart and then be run over by the wagon wheels. Cramp suffered chest injuries. The horses ran back to the company barn several blocks away. So these are very smart horses. <laughs> uh, the foreman who was working at the time was worried when Cramp had not returned and left to find the injured man under the viaduct. He was driven to the county emergency hospital. 
again, not really anything directly related to the family, just that apparently it can be dangerous <laughs> driving a team of horses around because kids can throw stones at you. <laughs> In 1952, the Badger State Boxing Club was considering merging with another club called the Wisconsin State Boxing Club, and uh, there was a third club in town called the National Boxing Club, and there was some uh, some problems here where it was concerned that if they merge, you know, they might have a small monopoly on, on boxing in the state of Wisconsin, so that came under some scrutiny. And uh, it doesn't seem that it really happened. And actually, not long after this, uh, Frank Bailstreet walked away from the boxing business altogether. An unidentified reporter for a Milwaukee newspaper wrote a memo on November 3rd, 1955. This is really vague because this is coming out of an FBI report. So, like, the name of the reporter is blanked out. But, quote, while Frank Bellistri has no police record and is a clean character, he does mix with undesirable elements. So again, at this point, he hasn't been nailed for anything. But by 1955, the newspaper is passing on notes to the FBI being like, watch out for this guy. So somebody thinks he's up to something already. Okay, so, so hold on though. You said 1955 is when this gets passed from the reporter. When does he become mob boss again? approximately 1961. Okay. So he could have been, well, and it makes sense. He's definitely a mob guy at this point, point. but but he's, but he's keeping it very Very clean. clean. Okay. Frank Bellistry met with Milwaukee Phil and an unidentified Chinese man on May 1st, 1956 at a barbecue restaurant. That's very vague, but let me clarify this a little bit. Milwaukee Phil is the nickname of a man named Felix Eldericio, who would later in the 70s be the boss of the Chicago Mafia. He was already close to Frank Balistrieri even before this. And the reason I know that is because he was the godfather of Frank's firstborn son in 1940. So already by 1940, Frank has a mob guy be the godfather to his son. Mm -hmm. So again, even though he's been staying clean this whole time, he's clearly mixed up with some questionable characters. And as well as that, this person becomes such a big deal in the mob. He does. That that you feel like this isn't just like a one-off relationship that he has. I mean, he's pretty tight with somebody that's pretty high up, so he's probably pretty in in deep with the mob, right? That's fair. I mean... In 1940, at that time that that he was named Godfather, like he wouldn't have been that high up, but he was definitely a guy who was moving up. Yeah, because of all the guys in Chicago, not all of them make it up. We'll probably at some point do an episode just on Milwaukee Phil, um, because his name is Milwaukee <laughs> Phil. Um, so that's his tie to Milwaukee. The only tie. <laughs> no, the, so the his he's got connections because his wife owned a restaurant in Milwaukee. So, uh, which probably means he owned the restaurant in Milwaukee, but it was in his wife's name. He does have some connections. And he's just a fascinating character. He had a car called the Hitmobile. (laughs) Um, I'm sure that's not what he called it, but that's what the newspapers (laughs) called it. And uh, it had like secret compartments for guns. And it had his rear license plate was like on a swivel. So like after he'd shoot somebody, he could push a button. And the license plate would flip over into a different license Shut plate. Shut up. Totally true. <laughs> I know. It sounds like some James Bond crap, but, but it's really it's true. It really happened. That's awesome. Yeah. So, interesting guy. And he's definitely, Milwaukee Phil's a guy who 
was connected to some violent stuff, which is kind of unusual for a guy who becomes a boss, but he was definitely one of those guys. Was was he known as Milwaukee Phil in Chicago too? Yes. Like that was just his nickname? Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. Okay. Uh, by 1956, Joseph Balistrieri, again Frank's father, purchases a new home in Whitefish Bay, uh, which, for people who don't know, is a nicer part of Milwaukee. <laughs> so he's he's doing well for himself. This is the first time I know that Frank Balistrieri gets picked on by the police is in 1956 when he gets ticketed for keeping the blinds closed at his tavern. Apparently, I don't know if this is still a law, but apparently at the time, you had to keep your windows open so people on the outside could see what was going on inside of the tavern. I don't know. This seems like a very strange law. law, But But it wouldn't surprise me one bit if it's just a law that's still on the books and it's not enforced. Yes. So, Uh, In the mid-1950s, Nichelle Nichols, who would later become known as a Star Trek actress and who actually recently passed away in the last month or two as we record this, uh, she worked as a dancer in one of Frank Balistrieri's nightclubs. In her memoir, she recalls Frank asking her to strip for the patrons, but he backed off when she said that her father would not approve. She speaks about a manager being named Louie and a driver named Tony, neither of which I have any idea who they are, and about mob attorney Dominic Frenzy's attraction to her. Frenzy allegedly bought her a large ring and an expensive coat, both of which she turned down. Nichols also recalls one stripper being shot on stage in Milwaukee and another being found in a trash can during her brief time there. Which, I should be very clear, I have no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) While she does not outright say that the mob was behind these killings, it is strongly implied. Um, Yeah. I mean, if somebody knows, uh, please tell me, because I have no clue anything about any so strip, you can't... strip club dancer ever being shot on stage in Milwaukee. That is a complete okay. unknown to me. So it's not even know, not that you don't know that these, you don't even know if these crimes actually happen. Is I don't even know it, if they happened. Not just that the mob did them, but just that they even happened Like this all. part of her memoir, like, I know that some of this happened because she mentions Frank and she mentions Dominic Frenzy, both of who are real people. So, I mean, well, at least they, I mean, I don't know, I guess I don't know if they happened. I mean, she could be making it up, but, but she was at least a dancer in the club. That much is true. The being shot on stage and a, and a stripper being found in a trash can. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Not good records for that, huh? <laughs> no. And again, I mean, it's possible. And Mm. if it happened, I'd love someone to tell me because it'd make this a much better story. (laughs) But I don't know what these are in reference to. I have no idea. In 1957, police captain George Sprague, who would later be suspicious for other reasons, which we'll probably talk about when we get there, uh, asked that the city did not renew the license for the Villa Venice. He said the reason for this is... When arrests have been made at the Villa Venice, the police officers have been contacted by Frank Balistrieri instead of Rudolf Porchetta. Rudolf Porchetta was the person who held the license. In several of these arrest cases, Frank Balistrieri has been instrumental in getting them released without prosecution. Officers assigned to my office can testify to this. So, he thought that Rudolf Porchetta, who holds the license, isn't really the guy running this place. 
because Frank Belstreet is the one who keeps showing up. <laughs> and he's like, I think somebody is using someone else to get this license, which would be a running theme throughout Frank's whole life, is having other people have the licenses for him. Uh, part of the reason being that Milwaukee used to, and maybe they still do, but they used to have a rule saying you could only have two licenses. So for, to be able to get yeah. more than one, two bars, you'd essentially have to have a partner. Yeah, if you, need a, if you need a third liquor license, can't be in your name. So, I mean, in that situation, that doesn't really sound like a shady thing he's doing by any means. It's, it's not just necessarily a, shady, but it's not legal either. Well, it's probably not illegal to be a partner in as many bars as you want, you know. Yeah, it depends. There's probably a better way of doing it. I mean, this makes it look like he's trying to hide his ownership and things. Yeah, I can see that argument. Yeah. Um, At this time, uh, Frank was called in and he admitted that, yes, he owned the Downtowner Bar. He owned the Melody Room and the Roosevelt Bar, which is in the Roosevelt Hotel. The Melody and the Roosevelt were both in the Roosevelt Hotel, so they were covered by the same license. So he could have practically three places with two licenses. Uh, he denied any involvement with the Tower Tavern, the Trade Winds, or the Villa Venice, um, all of which is probably untrue. He probably was definitely involved no in those. All of them. The Tower and the Trade Winds were registered to his brother, which... Again, I mean, yeah, not technically illegal, but he's kind of skirting this a little bit. Um, so, yeah, he's got his brother on some of the records. He's got Rudolf Borchetta on some of the records. Um, and in all these cases, the attorney of record who filed for these licenses is Dominic Frenzy, who's his attorney. So, technically illegal, maybe not, but it's... It's walking the line. It's walking the line. line yeah. yeah. Because of this getting bad press... Rudolf Borchetta ends up selling the Villa Venice to another man um, just to get the police off their backs about who the actual owner of the place was. He's like, well, if you're going to not believe I own it, I'm just going to sell it. I'm getting out of here. In July 1957, a hearing of the Common Council ran for six hours about tavern licenses connected to Frank Balistrieri. Um, The police chief, Howard Johnson, not to be confused with the chain of hotels, Howard Johnson's, uh, really wanted these licenses pulled, but the Common Council, after long, long, long discussions, voted 14 to 4 against revoking the tavern licenses. So all these suspicious places uh, end up being just fine, except the Villa Venice because he sold it off. But if he hadn't sold it off, they probably would have let it slide anyway, it seems like. There was definitely some testimony that was suspicious that he had money invested in places, and they're like, and it's a fine line because it's not weird for if it's in his brother's name for him to borrow money to him for investments. So is he the owner? Is his brother the owner? They got evidence that he was the one who paid for ads in the newspapers for these bars that he did not own on paper. So again, it's like all these really gray areas where like we're pretty sure that he's the guy who owns these. Yeah, he's just not on all the paperwork. That was something he'd he'd do for the rest of his life. He'd always have a series of bars and nightclubs with a number of people who owned them on paper. But pretty much everybody knew that he was the one collecting the money at the end of the day. Uh, Frank's uncle, Peter, the guy who was suspicious early on uh, not being able to start the car after the shooting at police and beating the guy, uh, he died in California in 1958 at only 57 years old. 
This resulted in an informal meeting of the Milwaukee Mafia members in California because, you know, out of respect, they all went to California for the funeral. So you had an unusually large number of Milwaukee Mafia guys all hanging out in California for a few days. The FBI received information on April 6, 1959, that Frank Belstrey and Chicago hoodlum, Marshall Caifano, and someone might knock me on Caifano, so, uh, entered a new bar restaurant, and Caifano told the owner, this new place with its remodeling must have cost you quite a bit of money. The FBI wasn't sure if this was a subtle threat or just an observation. <laughs> Apparently, if, if a known mob guy walks in and says this place... Looks like it must have cost you quite a bit of money. It's hard to tell if it's just a compliment (laughs) or or something suspicious. But nothing happened there, so let it slide. A party was held at Gallagher's, this is another Balestrieri bar, on February 28th, 1960. Frank gathered 100 friends and entertainers to say goodbye to the Roosevelt Hotel in the Melody Room, which were going to be destroyed for city improvement. He told the press that he had invested as much as $350,000 in the building. But the city was only paying him one hundred and ninety-four thousand, <laughs> so he was losing over a hundred thousand dollars for the city tearing the place down. But he tells the newspaper, "So what? I'm yielding to civic improvement." <laughs> for some reason, I just don't envision Frank Frank Bellastri's mindset being in that position. I, I'm sure it was very sarcastic. <laughs> in October 1960. He buys his house at 3043 North Shepherd Avenue, uh, which is the house that most people will identify as being his house because he lived there for the next 30 plus years. He bought it for $36,000, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but in 1960s money, that's actually a lot of money for a house. Uh, $20,000 of that comes from insurance loans from the Catholic Knights of Wisconsin. Don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know why. Pretty sure he had the money, but he he got the loan on it anyway. Um, This building was constructed in 1917. It is actually now a historic landmark. Not because Frank lived there. (laughs) Okay, I was going to say. But because of the guy who lived there before him, a man named Edward Inbush, who I have no idea who that is. But somehow he's a big deal. He was a big deal enough that his house is a historic landmark. landmark. Interesting. Three years after buying the house, he told the press that his mortgage was still big. But I don't know the exact amount. <laughs> Within a few years, he was big enough that people are randomly asking him about his mortgage. mortgage. <laughs> like, that that makes the newspapers. So don't ever become famous. People will <laughs> ask true. you about your mortgage. <laughs> um, and this kind of brings us up to the end of 1960. And in 1961, already, like, as soon as he's named the new boss, he's already up to his neck in tax problems. So... I don't know 100% what we're going to do next time, but it might be diving right into his tax issues. We've, we've vaguely mentioned them in the past because um, there was the, the, the gay bar episode where we talk about the IRS agent who was kind of um, blackmailed. And that's part of this, the tax story. But we'll, we'll take a bigger look at it and see why he got uh, nailed for taxes in the first place and uh, things like that. I think this guy is just a very interesting character because based on that story, you don't hear a lot of like mob talk in that pre prehistory story. No, I mean really and, if you didn't know who he was up to this point, he's just a business guy. Yeah. And it's just weird that God, I would really love to be able to just sit down and ask the guy like why? 
Like what drove what put you into the mob? Yeah. Because you're absolutely he has no reason to do it. No. no. And and I can't really even see because he was doing so well with the bar thing already. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the mob would have given him that would improve that. And like you've said, you've said that he was always kind of a guy that was about himself. He yeah. wasn't he wasn't nearly as, you know, like it was all about helping his bottom line. Yeah. So you got to feel like he got into the mob thing because it was going to help him in some way. But I just don't see how that like where that is. Like what does it help with? Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm fairly confident the reason he got involved in the first place is because his father was involved, his uncle was involved, and then when he got married, I'm pretty confident it was an arranged marriage, and so then his father-in-law was involved. So He was just surrounded I, by it. Yeah, and I think it was just something that was expected of, of him. him. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I never can figure out exactly why he didn't like step away from this at some point. Because, yeah, dude's making, if you adjust for inflation, this guy's making millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to be doing anything shady. He just has to continue operating operating his restaurants and bars and hotels. Yeah, he'd be doing just fine. And so weird. It's just to kind of wrap your head around. Yeah, they were profitable. And it wasn't because they were doing anything shady. They were just good businesses in the right part of town. And it, it's like you said, and I'm sure that the mob boss makes made significant amount of money, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like he was a greedy guy and got into the mob because of money. Because like you right. said, most of the guys in Milwaukee didn't really make a lot of money. No. I mean, probably the guy at the top did, but other than that, it was just kind of, you still had to go to the mill and work all day or whatever, yeah, right? Right. And that's, so, yeah, that's why the thing, it, it is very odd to me because- when it reaches the point where, you know, he's offered the boss position or he tries to get the boss position. I mean, I don't know exactly what happens behind the scenes, but whatever that is, I don't know what the motivation is to be like, yeah, I want that, that job. job. Yeah. Like it's other than the power. Why do you want that job? Like, right. Like it did nothing good for him. Mm-hmm. I don't think he got significantly wealthier off of it. He just got harassed more. Yeah. And, and you know what, probably as a bartender or a bar owner, he could have, he could have done shady things on his taxes for the rest of his life and the IRS never would have came after him. But the IRS came after him because he was a mob boss, right? Well, yes and no. I mean. I mean, he's, uh, the tax thing is, is sort of starts like before he takes over. Oh, okay. But, but 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 it's, but it's definitely because he's got these suspicious friends and stuff that i think he draws attention yeah i mean i'm gonna guess that they're not doing it because they think oh he's running uh, you know he's not paying his taxes on his bars they're trying to get him for something and this just happens to be the thing they can find they can get him for yeah so like so the tax thing really comes down in 1961 about the same time he becomes the boss but the fbi and i know we've mentioned this in the past but it's been a while the FBI in 1957, 1958, they created the the top hood, hoodlum list in each like major city. Mm. You know, I don't know that every FBI office had one. I don't know if the Salt Lake City office made a list. <laughs> um, if they did, I'd love to see it. But any of the major cities did, and Milwaukee included. And 
Frank was listed as one of the top 10, you know, crime guys in town. So, like, they knew who he was in 57, 58, even though he had never been arrested for anything, okay. they knew you he know, was other than, it. you know, some minor city ordinances. But and, they already thought that he was somebody to watch. And I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but I think you said, did you say that the uncle and the dad were actually part of the mafia? Yeah. Because I thought that was kind of not known. Like, they could have been, but they there was really no nothing that showed they were. Right. So, my understanding is his dad and two of his uncles were all mob guys. The reason it's not 100% is because there wasn't great informants that far back. Now, they were very strongly suspected, and when the FBI starts coming around in the late 1950s, they list them as, as mob members. So they're being told that they're mob members. But they very rarely are ever connected to anything bad. So so there's no real hard concrete evidence other than the fact that the government strongly believes that right. they're mob members. Right. So like if people pick up like the Milwaukee Mafia, Mobsters in the Heartland, the white covered book, um, you go to the index and you look up Balistrieri. I mean, the family gets mentioned a couple times. They're in the book. But, yeah, they're not, like, major criminals, at least not publicly, by any stretch. <laughs> so the family, like, is disproportionately targeted by the media and law enforcement. I mean, later on, they turn out to be right. But up to this point, they're getting way more attention Since compared to what they're actually doing. They're not doing anything wrong, and the government's just after them like crazy. Yeah. Um. The other thing I was curious about with with this is that so um you said pretty much the tax thing comes into to effect as soon as he becomes mob boss so well yeah more or less but I, does this drag I don't remember out the exact timeline but but does this trial just drag out for years it does so he does actually at some point in time operate as the active mob boss he doesn't just yes. like get thrown in jail immediately after becoming the mob boss and never really have any time as mob boss Person. No, it it drags on for years because there's the trial. Um, he gets convicted. There's appeals. I mean, it it goes on for years. Okay, so it's a major part of the story, like in his early boss days, and it creates a lot of frustration because there's. I mean, we'll get into that, but there's people asking him like, step aside at least for now. You can come back later, but it shouldn't be boss if you're. A, probably going to go to jail anyway, and B, like constantly on the front page of the newspaper because you're so aggressively fighting this. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I think it's interesting because I never looked forward to getting to Frank Balistrieri because I know Frank Balistrieri is like the big thing that everybody wants to know about. Yeah, which I I usually find that cliche and like yeah try to find something some other niche that i like about something but i do think he's genuinely an interesting character because a lot of his story that i know so far just doesn't make a whole lot of sense no and me. i agree with you i yeah. don't personally find him as interesting as some of the other people but he is yeah he's absolutely interesting in that sense in that um and you know i never met him like this is before my time but when i picture these guys some of these guys you picture like stereotypical mob, you know, thugs and whatever. 
that is not what you picture with Frank. Yeah, not at all. No, Frank Frank is very smart, very good businessman, well-dressed, well-spoken. I mean, he has no business being part of a crime syndicate. I mean, you need that, obviously. Yeah, and maybe that's what made him so good at it. I mean, that's... Maybe that I, I mean, don't know. yeah, the mob would would fail miserably if it didn't have <laughs> smart guys in it. But, yeah, but just like he's not what you picture as like the mob guy who's like, oh, let's go out there and smash some stuff. You know, it's not that guy. Yeah, and I, but I think probably if you really dig into the mafia, there's a lot of characters that don't fit the mold of what you think mm-hmm. a mob guy is going to be because. Let's face it, our perception of mob guys is running around shooting each other. And right. well, maybe not your perception because you've done so much research into it. But I think that's what most people's perceptions are. And when it all comes down to it, yeah, they had to have those guys. But they also had to have the guys that were running the day to day operations of making money. Because let's just say just because you can shoot a guy doesn't mean you're good at making right. money right. by any means. So, so yeah, they have a thing where there's like there's two kinds of mob guys. There's workers and there's earners. And workers is like the polite way of saying the guys who do the dirty stuff. Yeah, the muscle. Yeah. And the earners are usually, they're two, sometimes it's the same guy, but usually they're two very different kinds of guys. And Frank falls more in the earner category yeah. because he, throughout his entire life, is constantly involved in the gambling scene. He's not doing any of this dirty work. I don't know if he ever physically beat up anybody in his life. But he was always bringing in the gambling money, which makes him very attractive. Attractive, yeah. Yeah. And probably makes everybody like him. Yeah. Because, well, if anything, maybe he's given money to other guys. But even if he's not giving money to other guys, he sees you at the tavern. He just kind of buys you drinks all night. And then yeah. you, you become his best friend because, hey, he just bought all your drinks. Fair enough. So Fair enough, yeah. So... I look forward to this next chapter because I am cur- just curious to see all the things we can learn about Frank and because I do think it's just Yeah, a- well, you know, and I'm curious too. <laughs> because <laughs> because like th- this podcast really like it allows me to break things down and and that's good because I don't I typically for people who are curious about how, kind of how I do this like I collect the information and I put the information like I put it in like what I call dump files, which is not a great name <laughs> for them, but I call them dump files. And it's just kind of like taking all the information and putting it in order so I can find it later. <laughs> but until it comes time to actually like write a book or something, I don't ever really like put it together into individual stories. And the podcast forces me to do that. that into being like, okay. I mean, this one is kind of, this is kind of like a dump file this week yeah. <laughs> because it's because we're just throwing every little bit in there. But, you know, but it forces me to kind of like gather things into like what's relevant for this specific thing. And uh, sometimes I end up learning stuff that I should already know just because of, I'm putting it in a new format. Yeah. Well, and you're just revisiting it. And yeah. maybe there's something when you first looked at this. this piece of information you didn't know this piece of information so now that you know that piece of information it kind of puts things together in better perspective and that's true too that's true too because there's things that i made notes on 10 years ago that you know i'm sure i don't remember that i ever put notes on on. yeah Yeah. and what have you learned since then that would make those notes so much more clear right exactly so well interesting we got a little more research uh geek outness at the end of the podcast for everybody so but uh so, but yeah, so anyway, from this point forward, um, 
it's the Frank Belstrieri show. I mean, there'll be episodes that he's not in at all, but it's going to be a big part of it it's from here be, on out. He's going to be calling all his shots. So, yeah. All right. Well, you know what I thought of the other day, Gavin? Oh, yeah? What? You haven't given no contact information in like months on oh, for yeah? this podcast. So, oh, yeah. So we... before I forget to do that, let's let's get and that right I out keep, there. I keep getting emails. <laughs> so... I keep getting emails, so people apparently have figured it out. Um, but yeah, um, you can email milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can go to milwaukeemafia.com, which is where you can find some of these dump files. Um <laughs> Or uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, Facebook is my least favorite of the three. So, uh, you know, don't feel bad if I don't respond quickly. Even with the email, I don't always respond quickly. I'm not ignoring you. I'm just really bad at responding (laughs) to messages. Sometimes it takes me a week before I bother to check what's in there. Um, But I don't – everybody gets a response. Unless you call me a – dirty word that i might ignore you but as long as you're polite i respond to everybody and you can call me all the dirty words in in the world you want because gavin gets and enjoys that so that's yeah that's probably <laughs> that's probably okay but yeah but if all your messages is like go to hell you i hate you you're scum i'm not going to respond with thank you for your for your kind words <laughs> not going to do it so uh, so you're wasting your time if you do that but if you send me anything else at all whether it's a compliment a question uh, constructive criticism i'm i'm happy to take it and respond to it so very cool and as i like to always say please rem- if you enjoy this podcast leave us feedback on your favorite podcast player and also we do have our favorite patreon which gives yeah. you a, an episode on every week that there's not an episode in this feed so you can find that at milwaukeemafia.com find the link to the patreon and get signed up for that and Gavin, do you want to give them a sneak peek into what you have for a story next week, or are you not sure what that well, like story I say, is going to be? I don't know. No, exactly. I, I have to double-check the timeline. Um, we're Obviously, we're leading into this tax case, so that could be next week, uh, but if not, it's definitely coming up real soon. Yeah, so it might be tax, might be something completely different. We don't know at this yeah. point in time. But make sure to tune in. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, and thanks, everybody, for your continued support. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.